good morning. Of course, we have those here in the sanctuary, those joining online and those who will listen after the fact. Uh, on our website or on iTunes, I want to welcome you. You know, we're in a season right now after Easter, and if any of you were here on Easter Sunday, uh, and if you can see what's behind me right now, we were reminded that not only do we celebrate on Easter Sunday and every Sunday, but every day that there is an empty cross and also that there is an empty tomb. We follow a Jesus who is alive and well, whose scripture says is the right hand of the Father interceding for us on our behalf. And to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone, which is our mission as a church, individually and collectively, would look very different if Jesus was still in the grave. To follow somebody still in the grave would be to simply emulate his life uh, or to imitate his life or to apply principles from his life and his teaching to us. But rather, no, 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 Scripture says that we have a Jesus who is alive and well. And we've been exploring in these weeks of April that we can follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone to every area in our lives and on this earth, that actually there's no place in the cosmos that we can't follow Jesus. And in these four weeks, we're exploring how people are experiencing, people are seeing Jesus in the seemingly areas of which we normally wouldn't imagine to see Jesus. So in a moment, we're going to hear a perspective that uh, I'm very encouraged to hear. And it reminds us that even in the cosmos, even in astronomy, uh, that we have a God that we can meet personally. And in a moment, I'm going to invite our guest speaker up, but I want to let you know a little bit about his background. He is a, a resident here in Southern California. He's here with his wife, Kathy, and his team. They started uh, Reasons to Believe, an organization that is now in its 30th year. He travels not only all over California, was in um, yesterday, last night, late even, was in Austin, Texas. He travels also all over the world. And the reason why is because he is not only a pastor, he is also an astrophysicist. And in addition to his ministry and his publications, he received a degree from the University of British Columbia and the University of Toronto. And with that background, all the work that he's done, uh, some postdoctoral work at Caltech as well, why don't we give a very warm welcome on this Sunday morning to Dr. Hugh Ross. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back here again. I used to come here quite frequently doing skeptics forums for the UCLA crowd here. Now, I've been asked to give how do we see Jesus in science? And there's a lot of scientific disciplines. And what I can tell you as a president of Reasons to Believe, every single discipline of science testifies that Jesus Christ is Creator, Lord, and Savior. Now, each one of you can pick up one of these cards at our book table outside. What it does is gives you a quick summary of we, what we consider to be the best scientific evidences that Jesus Christ is Creator, Lord, and Savior. I encourage you to take one of those and give it to a non-Christian friend or associate. And you can also fill this little contact card out there. And if you do that, we'll give you a free copy of this DVD where I answer science faith questions. That's another tool that you can give out to your non-Christian friends and associates. Our goal at Reasons to Believe is to equip you to be effective at evangelizing people in all walks of life at all education levels. Now, I'm forced to pick one subdiscipline of science to speak about, and I'm picking cosmology. And it's not just because I'm an astronomer. The value of astronomy is the one scientific discipline where you have direct access to the past. 
The other scientific disciplines, we infer the past, but in astronomy, we directly observe it. It's because it takes light time to travel from galaxies and stars to reach our telescope. And what I can tell you is, being alive in the 21st century, we now have telescopes so powerful, we can look so far away that we can actually watch the universe being created. And whenever I say that, people say, you've got to be exaggerating. You mean we can actually watch the universe come into existence? Here's how close we can get. I can show you images of the universe where we're looking at the universe when it's only a hundred billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. That's how close we can get to the cosmic creation event. And explains why it's in astronomy we get the most rigorous, compelling scientific proofs for the God of the Bible. So, cosmic reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. And here's an outline of where I'm going to take you in the next few minutes. We're going to look at how astronomers have proven that there must be a transcendent God, a God beyond space and time that brings the universe into existence. Then number two, how that God must be a personal being, a powerful, loving being. And last of all, why it must be a redeeming being, a being intent on bringing redemption to billions of human beings. Now, I come to you as a confessing addict in astronomy and physics. I became addicted when I was seven years of age. From the age of seven all the way through my growing up years, I was reading about five books on astronomy and physics every week. And one of the first books I read as a seven-year-old was this one, Nature of the Universe, by Fred Hoyle. Now, if you read the book, He's obviously very angry at Christianity, very upset at the Christian faith. Nevertheless, he had this to say about the Bible. There's a good deal of cosmology in the Bible. It is a remarkable conception. And it wasn't until I was 16 that I became convinced through my studies in astronomy that there had to be a God to explain the existence of the universe. And starting at age 17, I went through the holy books of the different religions of the world, trying to find this cosmic creator. And I discovered what Fred Hoyle said was indeed true, that the Bible says more than 10 times as much about the origin and history of the universe as all the rest of the holy books of the religions of the world combined. Now, one of the things it does say about the universe that I think most of you are familiar with that it has indeed a beginning. And not just any kind of beginning, but a space-time beginning. The other religions of the world say that God creates within space and time that eternally exists. The Bible says space and time don't even exist until God creates the universe. So from a biblical perspective, cosmic creation is the coming into existence of matter, energy, space, and time, not just matter and energy. Now, I was reading the Bible seriously for the first time when physicists in Britain were developing the first of the space-time theorems. And these theorems are very powerful because they're based on only two assumptions. Assumption number one, the theorem is true if the universe contains mass. And each one of you is living proof that the universe contains mass. A few of you a little more so than others. <laughs> the second condition is the theorem is true also 
if the equations of general relativity reliably describe the movements of bodies in the universe. Now, do you remember what happened last February? They announced the discovery of gravity waves. It's going to win the Nobel Prize. Why? Because it was the last prediction of general relativity to be proven to be correct. And it's such that since February, general relativity now ranks as the most exhaustively tested and best proven principle in all of physics. What does this mean? It means that the conclusions of the space-time theorems are true. No doubt that the universe contains mass. No doubt that general relativity reliably describes the movements of bodies in the universe. And I actually brought one of these space-time theorems with me. This is the latest and most powerful of the space-time theorems. Inflationary space-times are not past incomplete. I don't know where they get the titles of these papers from, but this is a paper you all got to read, especially those of you who are really into tensor calculus. You won't be able to put this thing down. <laughs> but it ends with a statement you can all understand. This is the conclusion of the theorem. Any universe that expands on average, and only a universe that expands on average, can possibly support physical life. Any universe that expands on average has a space-time beginning, implying a causal agent outside space and time who creates space-time matter and energy. Now, I want to share with you a statement that what one of the there are three physicists who are responsible for this theorem. And I'm going to read from you a statement from a book written by Alexander Vilenkin, one of the three authors, a year after this theorem came out. This is what he said. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, what is that problem? Here's the problem. Proof of a space-time beginning implies a causal agent beyond space and time who created our universe of matter, energy, space, and time. Or to put it another way, a transcendent God must exist. There must be a God beyond space and time that created everything. And you actually see this reflected in the latest books being published by atheist physicists and astronomers. People like Lawrence Krauss, who recently published the book A Universe from Nothing, or Stephen Hawking, The Grand Design. What you see in their books is they concede they cannot avoid a deistic worldview. They cannot avoid the conclusion there must be some kind of causal agent beyond space and time that created the universe. Now, if you read their books, they never refer to this agent as God. It's always the causal agent who transcends space and time that creates everything. But last time I checked, that's the dictionary definition of God. But where they're adamant, they're saying this agent exists, but no way is this agent a personal being. So that's where the battle is shifted. No longer are we debating the existence of God. We're now debating in the scientific community, is this God a personal being? So that's the second question I want to challenge or take up. His transcendent being exists, but is God personal? And did he design the cosmos and the earth for the redemption of billions of human beings? 
Now, as much as the universe says about the beginning of the universe, it actually says much more about the expansion of the universe. And as a pastor, I'm shocked that most people in the pews don't even realize this. And I think I know why. You won't see it in Genesis. It's not in any of the books that Moses wrote. But you do see it in the oldest book of the Bible, Job 9.8. Job says, God alone expands the universe. Now, often I think why it's missed. Most English translations, it's God alone stretches out the heavens. And that's what you see in the other passage. It's a stretching out of the heavens. But the verb translated stretching out, it's the Hebrew verb nata, which literally means expansion. Now, what impressed me when I first read the Bible is I knew as an astronomy student, no book of science, no book of philosophy even hinted that the universe expands until the 20th century. When I read these passages in the Bible, I realized for thousands of years, the Bible stood alone as the only book in the hands of humans that says we live in an expanding universe. This is dramatic proof that the Bible has predictive power, that it's actually able to predict future scientific discoveries thousands of years ahead of time. And that was my first clue that indeed the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, probably the thing that motivated me most to sign my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, giving my life to Jesus Christ uh, at age 19. Now, this is not lost on the community of atheists. I've debated Michael Shermer, the executive director of the Skeptic Society, several times. And when this comes up, he says, those passages in the Bible are not saying that. Those are just figures of speech. You, Hugh, are just trying to read expansion into those texts. But my response is this. If you look at those 11 verses, the verb nata is in all three Hebrew verb forms. This is not figures of speech. This is not word pictures. It literally is saying we live in an expanding universe. And it's not just me, a 21st century astronomer, reading this into the text. Jewish theologians, 800 years ago, declared, indeed, that's what these texts are saying. Now, I've written a whole book, The Crater and the Cosmos, giving you the most compelling evidence that indeed we live in an expanded universe. I don't have time to give you the best evidence, but I will give you a visual one. And it's thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope. So for example, on the left here, we're looking at galaxies located 12 billion light years away, which means we're seeing them as they were 12 billion years ago. And on the right, galaxies only 2 billion light years away. And so 10 billion years later in the future of the universe. And I purposely put both of these images to the same spatial scale. So you can see that 12 billion years ago, galaxies were jammed so tightly together they were tearing spiral arms off one another. But as you move forward 10 billion years, the galaxies have expanded away from one another where that is now a very rare phenomenon. And again, if we had time, I could show you many other images that would demonstrate that indeed the universe has been continually expanding from the cosmic creation event. Now, back in 1999, we discovered dark energy. How many have ever heard of dark energy? Okay, gee, over half of you have heard of dark energy. 
it makes up three quarters of all the stuff of the universe. So three quarters of the universe is dark energy. And it's the factor that's most significant in controlling the expansion of the universe. Now here's the problem. If you expand the universe too quickly from the cosmic creation event, gravity will not be able to collect the gas to make any galaxies, stars, or planets, and life would be impossible. But if you expand the universe too slowly from the cosmic creation event, then gravity will collect all the gas and compress it into nothing but black holes and neutron stars, where the density is so extreme, molecules are impossible, atoms are impossible, even protons and electrons are impossible, and clearly life is impossible. Well, ever since dark energy was discovered, my colleagues have calculated the degree to which you have to fine-tune design dark energy to get the stars and planets that would make life possible. The answer is you have to fine-tune it to one part in 10 to the 122nd power. That's 122 zeros after the one. It's a mind-boggling big number. But what I'm going to try to do is give you a way to visualize what that fine-tuning design means. Okay, back in February, we discovered gravity waves thanks to an amazing instrument known as LIGO. It's a gravity wave telescope. It ranks as by far the most sophisticated, best-designed machine that human beings have ever made. It's the epitome of human engineering design and creativity. But if we compare the level of fine-tuning design in this amazing telescope, by the way, I'll tell you how amazing it is. They bounce the light off of mirrors four kilometers apart, and they can measure the movement of the mirror to within one-tenth of the diameter of a proton. That's how amazing this instrument is. But if you compare the fine-tuning design of this telescope to the, what we see in dark energy, we realize that the best example of human engineering design and creativity ranks 10 to the 97 times inferior. Now, this telescope was invented by Caltech and MIT physicists. It was designed by them and was funded by your tax dollars. What this comparison tells us is that the one that designed dark energy at a minimum is 10 to the 97 times or 10 trillion 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 times better educated, more knowledgeable, and more intelligent than those Caltech and MIT physicists. Now, I've worked with these people. They're not dumb. <laughs> but the one that designed dark energy is 10 to the 97 times more intelligent and more knowledgeable. Or I could put it another way, 10 to the 97 times better funded than our U.S. government. <laughs> now, I think you're getting my point here. This agent that transcends space and time must be a personal being because only a personal being would have the attributes of knowledge, intelligence, creativity, and power, and especially care to design things for the benefit of the creatures that he creates. So we really are dealing with a personal being. Now, this has also been acknowledged by theoretical physicists who are atheists. 
and three of them, when dark energy really became all the news, wound up publishing this paper titled Disturbing Implications of a Cosmological Constant, which is another term for dark energy. And has caught the attention of a fourth atheist physicist, the one who is the physics editor for the British journal Nature, probably the most famous science journal in the world. And uh, as Philip Ball interviewed these three authors, this is what the authors had to say about dark energy. Quote, arranging the universe as we think it is arranged, say the team, would have required a miracle. Now consider this. These are atheist theoretical physicists, and they're using the word miracle. And this is the second comment. An unknown agent, namely beyond space and time, intervene in the evolution or the history of the universe for reasons of its own, which explains the title of their paper, Disturbing Implications. <laughs> namely, that if dark energy is real, there must be this agent beyond space and time performing miracles for reasons of his own. And if you read all the way to the very end of the paper, this is the last sentence that they published in their paper. Perhaps the only reasonable conclusion is we do not live in a world or a universe with a true cosmological constant. In other words, they concluded their paper by stating dark energy must be wrong. Because if dark energy is real, we have this agent beyond space and time performing miracles for reasons of his own. And that's just too disturbing to think about uh, for these gentlemen. Now, the irony of this paper, it was published just months before astronomers came up with nine independent observational demonstrations that not only is dark energy real, it's the dominant component of the universe. Now, here's the list of the nine. And if you go to our reasons.org website, I actually have written a short article on every one of these nine demonstrations that dark energy is real and the dominant component of the universe. And if you actually go to that uh, URL at the bottom there, you'll see that there's actually 25 astronomical demonstrations that dark energy is real and the dominant component of the universe. The evidence continues to mount. No longer can any astronomer say there isn't dark energy. It's real. It's the dominant component of the universe. And what does that mean? There really is a being, not just an entity, but a being beyond space and time who is performing miracles for reasons of his own. Now, if you were to ask me as a scientist, where do we find the most spectacular evidence for supernatural, superintelligent design for the benefit of human beings? I would say it's this dark energy. But it's not the only factor. Virtually every feature of the laws of physics and of the universe testifies of this extraordinary degree of fine-tuning design. For example, all four forces of physics have to be fine-tuned. If you were to change the ratio of electromagnetism compared to the force of gravity by as little as one part in 10,000 trillion, 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 stable stars would not be possible. Stars would form and instantly explode or they wouldn't form at all. Either way, you would not have life. And the list goes on. 
And again, you can go to the URL at the bottom and you'll actually see all the documentation for this fine-tuning design for physical life to be possible. Now, if you look at Job and Psalms, you'll see many passages that say, the more we look at nature, the more we study the record of nature, the more evidence we'll see for the supernatural handiwork of God and for His attributes. And so we actually took that on as a research project at Reasons to Believe beginning in 1991. <coughs> and we went through the scientific literature, and back in 1991, we found 17 features of the laws of physics in the universe that show this extraordinary degree of fine-tuning design. But what I want you to notice is how the list has been growing with respect to time. Today it stands at over 200 different features. Testifying that what you see in Job and Psalms is correct. The more we look at nature, the more we study it, the more evidence we see for the supernatural handiwork of God. And again, it's not just those of us that are Christian astronomers that are seeing this. This is seen ubiquitously amongst the astronomical community. In fact, you can go over to the bookstore there at UCLA and you'll see about 50 books written on the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle is simply the observation that when we look at the universe, we see that it's been designed for human beings. And every one of my colleagues, whether they be an atheist or an agnostic or a deist uh, or a Christian, they all agree that when we look at the universe, we see overwhelming evidence in the words of the agnostic physicist Paul Davies uh, for design of the universe for the benefit of life and human beings in particular. Here's a quote uh, from Freeman Dyson, a very famous physicist, not a believer, but he wrote in his book, Disturbing the Universe, the more I examine the universe, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known we were coming. But let me add this. It also must have known that the Creator intended to redeem billions of human beings. So that's the third point I want to examine. How does the universe testify that God not only is transcendent and personal, but also the Redeemer? Romans 8 tells us that the entire creation groans, groans because the entire creation is subject to a pervasive law of decay. And the Bible is filled, especially Ecclesiastes, talks about everything in the universe as undergoing decay. Hey, look around you. We're all evidence of that ongoing decay, right? We're all decaying. Everything is decaying. The stars are decaying. The universe is decaying. But there's a promise in Romans 8. There will come a time when we'll be liberated from this ubiquitous decay. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now that should prick your curiosity. What is it about the law of decay that's so crucial to bring about the glory and the redemption of human beings? This is what got me thinking uh, years ago. Is it possible that the laws of physics and the universe are actually designed to eliminate evil and suffering once and for all and to bring redemption to billions of William, uh, willing human beings? And indeed, that is exactly correct. And I've written a book on this, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, where I explain to a lay audience why we have to have gravity 
for God to be able to eliminate evil and suffering, why we have to have electromagnetism, why we have to have a universe with length, width, height, and time, why space and time must be the way it is. I don't have time this morning to get all the details. I'm simply going to focus on the law of decay, the law of entropy, or the second law of thermodynamics. One of the things we notice, God has set up the second law of thermodynamics in such a way that the decay rate is not so high as to frustrate us from doing useful work. I mean, my wife is sitting over there, and she will tell you that uh, I'm not a big fan of yard work. There's a good reason why I'm not a big fan of yard work. I can spend four hours getting our backyard into the condition that pleases my wife. Ten days later, I've got to start all over again. The law of decay is definitely operating in our backyard. Now, what if that were to be such that I would spend four hours putting the backyard together and ten minutes later it was back in the same state? Would I ever do yard work? Would any man ever do yard work? Would any of us do any kind of work? And how then could we survive? How then could we discover that there is a God? So God keeps the rate of decay from being so high as to frustrate us from doing useful work and learning what we need to learn. Because it actually takes thermodynamics to learn things. But the other thing we notice is the decay rate is not so low as to let sin go unrestrained. And let me take you to the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve rebelled against their Creator and introduced sin and evil into the creation. And so God told them, because of what you've done, from now on, you'll experience more work, you're going to experience more pain, and you're going to waste more time. Now, God had already set it up. Because of the laws of physics, it's guaranteed that the more we commit evil, the more pain we're going to experience, the more work we're going to have to do, and the more time we're going to waste. In fact, I told that to my sons when they're young. If I don't discipline you, the laws of physics will, and you're going to experience more pain, more work, and more wasted time. And this is really the theme of this book, why the universe is the way it is. But it's such that as we struggle with these laws of physics and realize, you know what, it really is to my advantage not to be a sinner, not to commit evil. I really should pursue a virtuous pathway. But here's what you learn. The harder you try to avoid evil, the more you discover it you can't. And that teaches us a lesson, that there's a creator out there, and we can see in the universe, that creator clearly is very powerful. I hope you've already understood that from what I shared. And the creator must be also very caring for the ways provided for his creatures. God is so powerful and so loving, he would not leave us in a hopeless position. He himself must have provided the way we can be delivered from our frustration of trying to lead a virtuous life and avoid evil. And Job discovered that independent of any scriptures. He looked at the book of nature and said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And because I'm putting my faith in his provision and not my best efforts, I know I will stand with him. In my flesh I will see him and I'll be permanently bond to him for the rest of eternity. You can read that in the 19th chapter of Job. Okay, I'm going to close with a quick story. I was in the airport once and I heard my name being called. 
Never a good thing. That usually means you're being bumped. But instead they said, uh, Dr. Ross, do we mind if we put you in first class? And I said, I think I can handle that. So, and I wound up being seated by another gentleman who, like me, never flies first class. But he was going to consult for Microsoft. And he told me, I'm a quantum physicist from Germany, and I'm an atheist and a skeptic. Now, typically it's rare where people give you that kind of an introduction right off the bat. So uh, he asked me who I was, and I said, well, I'm not a quantum physicist, I'm an astrophysicist. And uh, I'm not a skeptic or an atheist, uh, I'm a Christian. And he said, this is going to be a really interesting flight. <laughs> and so as we sat down, he says, I got some questions for you. Well, over the course of two hours, he asked me eight questions about God and the universe. And I answered his questions. And at the end of those two hours, he said, how come you've got such well-prepared answers for those questions? And I said, well, the eight questions you asked me are eight chapters in my book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is. <laughs> and he said, you've got to be kidding. And I said, well, I've got a copy in my briefcase. <laughs> I pulled it out. He opened up the table of contents and says, there's my eight questions. They're right there. And I share with him, you're not the first man I've met that have asked those questions. And he says, I've written this book for people like you. And he looked at the book, and I could tell he wanted one, so I gave him a copy. And then he said, you know, I'm German. Do you have anything in German? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> you know, God prepares us in advance for the opportunities we'll have. What does the Bible say? Always be ready to give good reasons for the hope within you. You know, my briefcase is down there. You can open it. I've got DVDs and books in there. Why? Because I keep running into people like that. If you're prepared, God will bring people to you, and you'll have the joy of leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. So, by the way, we've sold out of that book, but you can go to reasons.org and get it. And uh, you can also get uh, this book or DVD, The Great Debate. That's not our title. That's a debate I did at Caltech in front of the International uh, Skeptic Society. So atheists from all over the world came to Caltech to hear these six scientists uh, talk about why science proves there is no God. And at the very end, they had me debate Victor Stenger, a particle physicist. And what you're going to see in that debate is basically what you heard this morning. But you get to see how what I share with you this morning stands up in front of a very highly educated, very hostile audience. And by the way, you know what they told me after the debate was over? This is the first time we've heard a scientific defense for the Christian faith. We always assumed there was no scientific defense because we've never heard Christians give it, which is why I would encourage you, get our resources, get equipped. I'm not saying you've got to understand everything at the level of a German quantum uh, physicist. You simply need to be able to know what to put into their hands. That's basically our role at Reasons to Believe. It's to provide resources that you can give to people. You'll see a bunch there out at the table. But let me close with this. Job, chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. Science not only declares that there's a God that transcends space and time, who's a personal being, but also declares that this is a God that desires to redeem anyone who would like to spend eternity with him. Thank you.